This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Hello, I'm James Thanos, and this is Unbound. Today, our guest is writer and broadcaster Britt Ray, and we're going to discuss her book, Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of the Extinction. Hello, Britt. Welcome to Unbound. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Your book, Rise of the Necrofauna, is so rich in ideas and information, I hardly know where to begin, but let's start with you. Could you tell us something about your background, what exactly de-extinction is, and how you became interested in the subject? Sure. So I, uh, I did my undergraduate degree in biology. During that time, I became pretty obsessed with the extinction crisis. I was really concerned about the loss of biodiversity. Um, I knew I didn't want to go on to become a traditional scientist because my time spent in the lab for those years wasn't what made me feel most alive. Instead, I was drawn to telling stories about science. Um, David Attenborough, the great documentarian from the BBC of the Natural World, um, inspired me to go into science communication. Sometime later, after then going to art school and then um, starting a PhD in science communication and having worked as a radio producer, making science documentaries and audio uh, for, for quite some years, I heard about this really quizzical idea put forth by technologists um, that they wanted to recreate extinct species in the name of conservation, using the latest biotech tools, things like CRISPR-Cas9, gene editing tools, cloning, and even selective breeding methods to be able to actually cobble together animals in the lab that can mimic species that we made go extinct. Uh, as though that would be helpful in the extinction crisis because it could fill a hole in nature that was otherwise ripped open by human activity when we can make these quote-unquote, de-extincted animals that can carry out the ecological roles of species that used to be here and no longer are, and therefore, since their disappearance, the ecosystem in question has become impoverished in some way or less productive. So that sounded, A, like science fiction, B, like it could have a lot of tricky um, ethical questions attached when you're making these animals for these instrumental purposes in something as complex as ecosystems that we don't fully understand the functioning of. And C, it also seemed quite hopeful. So I wanted to dig into that and understand what was driving the people at the helm of these projects. And that's what began my reporting initially for radio on the on the topic. And then um, after I made an hour-long uh, radio documentary for the CBC program called Ideas about de-extinction, I got a call from a publisher saying, hey, do you want to go further with this and turn it into a book? And um, so then I spent several years looking at the paradoxes and, and strange realities of de-extinction. Well, now, of course, in, in the popular imagination, the first thing that comes to mind when this subject is raised is Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. And in your book, you actually have a Jurassic Park connection, don't you? Sure, yes, there, there is a Jurassic Park connection. And that is um, that in real life, there was a scientist named George Poynor Jr. who inspired Michael Crichton and his writing of Jurassic Park 
because of some um, hypothesizing that the, the scientist George Poinard Jr. was doing around uh, these amber-encased blobs that he had at home that encased these um, insects that had reddened and gorged bellies. And he and some other uh, scientists who study prehistoric life forms uh, were surmising that maybe the blood inside the bellies of those insects that were trapped inside the amber that came from the Cretaceous period Maybe that blood belonged to dinosaurs, and they were thinking specifically because of the dating of the amber that it could have been the duck-billed dinosaur. And then they were having some fun with this idea, and they wrote up a little paper that detailed how maybe we could actually get the molecules of DNA out of those uh, specimens that would have belonged to a dinosaur, and that bit by bit, perhaps you could cobble a dinosaur back together once you understood the DNA that constituted it. So they didn't think it was realistic. It was kind of a thought experiment. They were having fun with the idea and they published it in a a, a journal in um, the University of California, Berkeley journal system. And then Michael Crichton got a hold of it, the the famous writer who wrote Jurassic Park, and it inspired him to go forth with the idea that there could, in fact, be a world where scientists embark on this wild mission to create a theme park filled with dinosaurs by this method of looking inside the amber to get the blood and the DNA that they needed to do that work. However, George Poinard Jr., um, you know, the renowned paleogeneticist that he is, had a son, Hendrik Poinard, who was also inspired by the science. He was studying biology at the time of the Jurassic Park movies when his dad was a, um, a consultant on set at that point. So he was, you know, young in his late teens and able to show up to the Jurassic Park movie set and, um, you know, give them advice on, oh, your DNA synthesizers, they shouldn't look like that. They should look more like this. And so it was this blurring of fact and fiction because here was the storytelling pursuit that he was able to go to when he was a budding biologist of his own right. And he was, of course, aware that his father's scientific thinking had inspired the plot line for this. And then he, Hendrick, George Poinard Jr.'s son, grew up to become Uh, an expert in mammoths, of all things, woolly mammoths. And uh, he's he's an expert in ancient DNA of woolly mammoths, and he has his own lab now at McMaster University in Hamilton. So during my writing of the book, I I would visit him and and speak with him about his connection to Jurassic Park through what is essentially the real-world scientific dynasty (laughs) that he and his father have as it relates to that mythic tale. But interestingly, Hendrik Poinar has been one of the first scientists to sequence the woolly mammoth genome, which gives scientists the first piece of the puzzle that they need to do de-extinction of woolly mammoths, which real-life scientists are now doing. So he is kind of folding back into this pursuit, but not through the Hollywood version like his dad did with Jurassic Park. It's actually the real-world version with scientists at Harvard who are now trying to de-extinct woolly mammoths. So so could you explain why it's highly unlikely that anyone will be cloning a dinosaur anytime soon or ever? Sure. So dinosaurs have uh, been missing. <laughs> they went extinct nearly 66 million years ago. That's an incredibly long time. 
Um, when dinosaurs died and, you know, fell into the ground, their fossilized remains, um, you know, as, as they were fossilizing, they were exposed to the elements for incredibly long amounts of time, which means that uh, they get contaminated, you know, their bodies, their cells, as they're decaying, is contaminated by other organisms that have their own DNA, things like fungi and microbes and bacteria. Um, and so that means that whatever uh, could have been salvaged at some point, let's say, uh, of their DNA would be, would be deeply degraded and contaminated uh, had we been able to actually read out useful bits of DNA from fossilized remains. But we've never been able to do that. They've actually been gone way too long to be able to read out any useful bits of DNA from their remains. Sometimes we're able to do this. Um, scientists are able to do this with specimens that died more recently. So the oldest specimen that scientists have been able to read out um, ancient DNA from is a, a kind of horse mm -hmm. uh, from 700,000 years ago. And when you think of 700,000 years compared with 66 million years, the time that the dinosaurs have been extinct for, uh, that's only a tiny fraction amount of that amount of time. And, and therefore, you can see how challenging it is to really get any useful information out of um, ancient specimens when the oldest thing we've been able to do it with is 700,000 years old. Basically, when it has been attempted, um, although some people thought in the 1990s that they could actually read out some dinosaur DNA from encased amber, almost like they did in the film, those results were falsified. They always thought that the DNA that was salvaged would have actually come from the researchers themselves, some kind of contamination in the lab, nothing that was truly authentic to the dinosaur. And so we just don't have those basic building blocks, the first step that we need to do de-extinction. Dinosaurs are out of the question because they're just too ancient. Yes, and DNA starts degrading at the point of death. It's, it, it doesn't it start degrading immediately almost. Yeah, that's right. So as soon as an organism dies, this natural process sets in that kind of sets the, the pH off balance in the cell, which means that enzymes start chopping up DNA in the cell when the pH balance changes. So you can think of these enzymes basically like small molecular scissors that are running around and, and snipping the DNA into fragments. And so what was once a nice cohesive strand of DNA is now breaking off into smaller bits and becoming essentially confetti within the cell. And so later when you try to read it back out, how, how do you put them back together in the right order, um, especially as this uh, fragmentation occurs in different environments. You know, if it were to happen in a, a colder environment, then um, the DNA is more well-preserved and less fragmentation can occur. But if it happened in a warm, arid environment or a warm and um, kind of muggy environment, then that fragmentation speeds up. It's just the way that things spoil when you put them on the counter. If you have peas in your freezer, you know, they're, they're going to stay nicely frozen and intact. Um, they could stay that way for years, but if you have a bag of peas on the counter, they're going to rot. <laughs> and the same happens with DNA and, and its fragmentation process from the moment that death sets in. Mm. Well, you know, I, I have to say I, I really like also the alternate names for de-extinction. My favorite being zombie zoology. <laughs> yeah. That's that's really neat, yeah. Uh, what, what, what are the various causes for a species going extinct? Oh, well, there are many. Um, climate change is often one in which the environment changes 
drastically and uh, their their environment is no longer something that they are adapted to mm-hmm. that can cause extinction. Um, you know, loss of food sources, uh, a shift in the ecosystem itself, whereby a predator becomes overwhelming uh, and decimates a population of a species. Uh, of course, humans right. are driving most of the extinctions that we're dealing with today. We know that the extinction rate is about a thousand times higher right now than the normal background extinction rate suggests it ought to be. And as a result of our anthropogenic activity on the planet, you know, our um, transforming of ecosystems for our own gain, deforestation, um, poaching, uh, the human-caused climate changes that we are exacerbating now, all of these things lead to the increased species loss that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, technically you mentioned CRISPR, uh, uh, gene editing. So, so could you talk a little bit more about the, the, the techniques, the technology uh, uh, that makes the extinction possible? Uh, how is it done? Sure. There's three main ways that de-extinction is done. I'll begin with CRISPR. Um, so CRISPR is a gene editing tool. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, which is a totally ridiculous name, so we, <laughs> we shorten it to CRISPR. Um, but it, essentially, this is a naturally occurring um, immune system within bacteria and archaea, these simple, simple ancient organisms that allows them to protect themselves against invading viruses. And since 2012, scientists have learned how to essentially hijack that immune system so that it no longer just cuts up the DNA of invading viruses upon an infection, but it can target any kind of DNA sequence in any kind of organism and make changes to it. So this means that it can um, work in bacteria where it evolved, but also plants, animals, humans, you name it. It's kind of this universal platform that now has a, a navigational device whereby scientists can program this immune system function that cuts up DNA to go anywhere in the genome, anywhere along the genetic sequence in the organism, um, in the cell that they are editing. And so what's, what's especially powerful about CRISPR is that it doesn't just make cuts to DNA, but it can change genetic bases from, you know, DNA is made up of these four genetic bases, adenine, cytosine, um, thymine and guanine, ATCG, these letters that come in these incredibly long strings. And a single change in one of those letters can cause a disease in some cases or lead to another kind of physical attribute. Um, oftentimes, the changes need to be made across many different genes to that code to, ca- to cause a certain desired effect. But essentially, from studying the genomes of the animals that they want to, to mimic, and understanding what genetic changes um, they want to make in a new organism so that that organism can start to exhibit the traits of the extinct animal. So, for example, if you want to de-extinct a woolly mammoth, you work within Asian elephant cells because they're the closest living relative to the woolly mammoth. And you can use CRISPR within the genomes of elephants to identify bits of that elephant DNA that you want to change into woolly mammoth DNA, essentially. You can then program CRISPR 
to cut at specific spaces, introduce new DNA at specific spaces in that genome, or even now change bases one from the other. So turn an A into a T or a C into a G, for example. It's a very elegant way of editing genomes, um, which serves a bit like a, um, a Swiss Army knife for DNA that has a, you know, a magnifying glass that allows the scientist to scan the genome or the, the full in, internal DNA inside the nucleus of, of the cell inside the animals that they want to edit. Um, and then once they locate the right place to make the edit, it has scissors or a blade to make the cut and then essentially a pencil to write in the new DNA um, that you're intending for that organism to now have. So um, that's, that's CRISPR. It, what's revolutionary about it is that it, it's cheaper and easier to use than former gene editing systems that we've had, because uh, this is not the first time that we've been able to manipulate DNA. People know about GMOs, for example, and we've been able to do these experiments since the 1970s, but this is much more robust as a tool, and it's been evolving very quickly with a lot of capital thrown behind it since, we, um, since scientists learned how to wield it in 2012 as a gene editing device. Um, and then... Uh, so let's move on from gene editing and CRISPR into this, the second general area of how you do de-extinction, and that is with cloning. So uh, let's take the example of the one de-extinction that's actually happened on this planet to date, and that's the de-extinction of the Bucardo, which is a type of mountain goat. It's also known as the Pyrenean Ibex, and this goat lived in the Spanish Pyrenees. And um, in the early 2000s, the last living member of that species went extinct. Her name was Celia. Um, the species went extinct because we hunted them. And uh, essentially, Celia was crushed to death by a branch that fell from a tree. And it's this terrible, sad situation of um, the demise of that entire species from that event. But before Celia died, her um, caretakers had the wherewithal to preserve some of her cells and freeze them. And as I mentioned earlier, freezing prevents that kind of fragmentation of DNA. It preserves the cell and its contents. And so that meant that it, they had perfectly um, contained cells with the DNA nicely intact from the last living member of that species, which meant that they could try to clone her back to life after she died. And so this is the same process that gave us Dolly the sheep the most famous celebrated adult animal clone that you know was created in Scotland in 1996. And essentially what you do with this process is you take um, a cell from the animal that you want to clone, um, in, in this case it was from Celia, and you remove the nucleus, which is this package inside the cell that contains most of its DNA, and you remove that nucleus. So that has almost all of the genetic instructions that made Celia Celia. And then you take another kind of cell from a living animal. Um, and in Dolly's case, it came from another kind of sheep. Here they use different kinds of goats. And you remove the native nucleus of that cell. Then you insert the nucleus from the animal you want to clone, Celia's nucleus, into the cell that you've taken from another kind of goat. And you can apply some factors that 
get the cell in the right state that you need it. It's called reprogramming for cloning. And you stimulate it to start dividing with an electric shock. And you implant it inside the uterus of a surrogate mother. And if all goes well, that cell will start to develop into a clone. So um, just to backtrack for one moment, the cell that you would take from the animal that you insert the nucleus of the uh, Celia's nucleus, let's call it, would be an egg cell, ideally. Um, so that then when you have the egg cell empty of its native nucleus plus Celia's nucleus inside, you have an embryo um, that you can then stimulate to start dividing and put inside the surrogate mom. So this uh, was a process that they tried many, 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 many times to do the first ever de-extinction. There were 57 implantations in different surrogate goat mothers. Um, there's a lot of failure with clones, essentially. It's a very finicky process, and there's a lot of, of, of death along the way. Um, but eventually, one clone was born. Out of the eight pregnancies that I believe were started, one of them took and, and actually came all the way to a birth. And uh, that little clone was the first ever de-extinction, but it only lived for 10 minutes because it, too, had a problem that prevented it from flourishing. It had a lung deformity. And so this is the kind of situation that we're in with de-extinction by cloning. There's a lot of trial and error. Um, with Dolly, it also took many attempts, 277 attempts, before they got Dolly the sheep, who lived for many years. Um, but that raises some of the most basic ethical yes, considerations. Yes, indeed it does. Animal welfare. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we've got um, backbreeding. So this doesn't use fancy high-tech tools like CRISPR or, or cloning, um, but it just uses what we've been doing throughout the generations, which is uh, selectively breeding animals to get versions of them that we desire. So if there is an animal that is no longer here, it's extinct, but all of its descendants are here, as is the case with the aurochs, which is the extinct ancestor of all of today's living cattle, then what you can do is look at today's cattle breeds that resemble the extinct aurochs in some way. So let's say that it has the right coloration or size or horn shape. And then you set up breeding lines with these particular cattle types that share specific traits with the ancient extinct aurochs and you mate them together over many generations. And slowly but surely, the offspring that they produce start to combine these different traits and resemble more closely the extinct aurochs that you're trying to recreate. So the genomes are going to be really different. You know, it's certainly just a skin-deep de-extinction. It's not like there's any genetic fidelity here in the new organism. But if the idea is basically if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a good enough duck or aurochs as the case may be. Mm -hmm. Well, well who, who decides what lucky species to resurrect? What are the criteria? Well, there's no, um, let's say, legal uh, ordinance here as to who decides. Um, there is not an organization mm -hmm. that has authority on this at this point. Right now, scientists with particular interests are just going forth. But there are 
suggestions that have been made from the world's conservation authority, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They are the ones that manage the species red list that tells you, you know, which species are endangered and to what extent and all of that. And they've basically said, de-extinction is coming down the pipe whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. So we'd better be wise about how we do this because the overall goal of de-extinction as claimed by the scientists who are pursuing it is that they want to um, pursue ecological restoration with these animals that they create in the lab. They only want to create animals that can carry out the ecosystem roles of important keystone species or species that play a particularly crucial role in an ecosystem that have gone missing and then put them out into the environment. Therefore, if that's the goal, we have to be very clear about how we are selecting animals um, mm -hmm. for de-extinction because there'd better be, for example, a habitat to put them into. <laughs> exactly. Um, there needs to be a clear understanding of whether or not that habitat will be drastically changed by, let's say, climate change mm -hmm. in the years ahead right. and thereby transformed and, and perhaps then difficult for the lab-created de-extincted species to live in. Um, are there food resources? Uh, will it be able to sustain itself as a as a the original extinct species it's meant to mimic right. did? Uh, will there possibly be parasites or other pathogens in the area that could threaten it? Would there be human communities nearby that want to profit off of it in some way through hunting? Um, you know, all these kinds of considerations need to be put in place and really methodically thought through and studied and modeled mm -hmm. before you then pursue de-extinction is the suggestion of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. But there is nothing legally binding about these suggestions at this point in time. So someone could uh, decide to resurrect a species just because he or she likes it. It's sexy, wants to bring back a sexy beast. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's possible. It could be a vanity project as well, could it not? So yes, people could create their own sexy beast if they knew how to and they had the means, the resources. I mean, these projects aren't cheap. So um, anyone on a whim might have a hard time doing it. But in theory, yeah, sure. Um, however, those who are working in de-extinction are really, really adamant that they're just focused on this idea of ecological restoration. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, at some point someone might might get the idea that they just want to create animals for um, some kind of egotistical reason of being the first scientist to de-extinct a very exotic kind of species, for example. Um, we see in conservation biology as it is that we have huge biases around what species we care about saving. Mm -hmm. So we tend to be you know, very supportive of saving mammals and beautiful birds and these species that can look back at us with what we might recognize as a spark of intelligence in their eyes, while we care far less about the snakes and invertebrates and insects and and things of that nature. And that's, that's called uh, charismatic megafauna. Mm -hmm. Those are the types of animals that we tend to care about and usher our resources towards. And with de-extinction, um, we may risk just doing the same, you know, trying to recreate or quote-unquote resurrect extinct species that are impressive and galvanize public support because they're sexy beasts. And that, um, you know, 
inspire some kind of hope about these times of incredible species loss that we can, you know, get back these superstar species like woolly mammoths, for example. Um, but we need to, of course, scrutinize truly what ecosystem role they will have <laughs> if we're going to be sincere about de-extinction really uh, clearly only being pursued in order to help conservation efforts. Correct. And and there, there appears to be some tension between conservationists and de-extinction, the de-extinction project because uh, we are in the middle of, apparently, are in the middle of uh, the sixth uh, mass extinction on this planet. And, and there are those who say, why don't we support endangered species, use this technology to do that? Or, or can we do both? You know, um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think we can do both. Um, however, it really just depends on how the resources are allocated. So there is not one pot from which all conservation funds come, nor is there one pot from which de-extinction funds come. And this is what gets argued about a lot. Um, the, the idea that de-extinction's existence will siphon off resources that would otherwise go to endangered species is flawed in as much as that some people who want to see passenger pigeons revived or mm. gastric brooding frogs be cloned back to life or woolly mammoths or the aurochs and they they ha tend to have pet projects um, mm -hmm. and there could be wealthy benefactors that are okay with putting forth a certain amount of money just for woolly mammoth de-extinction because they think it's interesting which has indeed happened in terms of there being some interesting characters who are donating to these projects um, and they're not otherwise putting their money into funds for endangered species, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so they can be drawn from different purses. At the same time, um, there's a really interesting conservation economist working at the university uh, or Carleton University in Ottawa. Um, I believe his name is Joseph Carleton. And he did an assessment of what would happen on a certain dollar amount if we tried to save species that are having a hard time and still currently here versus put that same amount of money towards recreating species in the name of de-extinction. And you could save far more species on the same amount of money that are still here and need our help because, of course, traditional conservation is a lot cheaper than doing all kinds of fancy gene editing to create um, small populations of lab-created creatures that you need to rear and eventually reintroduce as a population into the wild. And so there is legitimacy to the idea that it's not the best way to spend money that goes into a broad category of conservation. We can save more biodiversity overall if we just focus on those species that are currently here. And that I, to that I definitely believe. The only issue is that the sources of the money are not the same. Mm -hmm. Well, when we bring a species back, how much help might it need from us uh, to reintegrate into a uh, perhaps radically changed environment? Well, that's, that's the big question. Because we haven't done it at a population-wide level with any of these creatures yet, we don't know the extent to which they're going to need our help, but we can look to um, what are called you know, species translocations. So when you have 
a, a species that has gone extinct in a certain area, but it isn't extinct globally. And then humans bring some members of the species, but from a distant population, back into the area where they used to be. And that that is an incredibly intensive process. It's not like you can just pick up a bunch of cranes and deposit them in a new area and leave them there and they will perfectly adapt and, and know how to go on living. There's this kind of facilitated adaptation process that conservationists have to become um, deeply tethered to and do in very careful ways so that they don't um, mess, mess it up essentially for these animals to be able to live on their own and, and become independent of the humans at a certain point in time. And so we know, we know how complicated those processes are, and we can imagine then that it would only be more complicated to do that when the species you're introducing to the environment has never lived there before, <laughs> and they don't have members of their own species to learn from because they're extinct. And so then we get into questions of surrogacy. You know, what, what animals could these new de-extincted creatures learn from in order to understand how to be that extinct creature they're meant to be? You know, will these woolly mammoth creatures, which are really hybrids between elephants and woolly mammoths, mm -hmm. um, will they learn what they need to learn to carry out the ecosystem roles of woolly mammoths if a herd of elephants are the ones to raise them? Because they're very, very big behavioral differences, I suppose. Well, there could be. We just don't know because we didn't we didn't study with them. We did live at the same time as woolly mammoths, but it was a very long time ago, and we certainly weren't um, under studying their behavior uh, the way that we would need to have to have an answer to that question right now. Um, mm -hmm. And so, first of all, we we don't even know would a, would an these are matriarchal societies. Elephants are incredibly um, strongly linked to one another. Would the matriarch would the mothers accept these funny looking? pseudo mammoths, you know, elephants with weird haircuts into mm -hmm. their societies, or would they be rejected and ostracized and left to suffer um, when they are probably very social animals themselves, given how closely related they are to elephants. We know how social elephants are. These are, these are just um, incredible basic challenges that might be faced when this is put into practice. Um, or maybe that surrogacy will work and they'll learn what's needed uh, to a certain extent, but of course they'll never learn everything because we, there's no woolly mammoths here to model that behavior. So then how will humans know what is enough help and what, what is the right kind of help and training to allow them to then, for example, go live in Siberia and mm -hmm. carry out the ecosystem roles that woolly mammoths once did. These are huge uncertainties that de-extinction is rife with, but that's not stopping scientists from wanting to go about it anyway. Yeah, so, so let's stay with the woolly mammoth, uh, the, you know, and, and talk about the efforts to recreate it. And also, uh, could you talk uh, about a place in Siberia called Pleistocene Park? Um, wh why would we bring back the woolly mammoth? What advantage would be in, in doing that? Sure. So the scientist at Harvard who's leading the project to de-extinct woolly mammoths using the CRISPR approach I mentioned. Um, his name is George Church, and he is operating from a theory that woolly mammoths can actually help mitigate some of the worst threats um, that are unfolding now with climate change as it relates to permafrost that is thawing. So 
permafrost, um, we're learning it's actually a terrible name for it. It's not permanently frozen as everything is warming up. Um, these enormous swaths of land in places like Siberia um, are thawing and those lands, that soil contains millennia worth of, um, you know, animals that have lived there and died and fallen into the ground, but also the, all the vegetation that has been there. And all, all of that vegetation and animal matter is comprised of carbon. And so uh, these carbon contents are now being released from the soils that were previously locked frozen. And as the carbon contents are releasing, um, microbes on the surface of the soil chew away at it and they turn it into carbon dioxide or methane which are two of the greenhouse gases that have us in our warming predicament in the first place. But the concern is that there's currently about twice as much carbon locked up in these uh, permafrost soils that are now thawing and releasing twice as much carbon there than there currently is in the atmosphere as we have it now with our warming predicament. So scientists are desperate thinking of ways to keep the permafrost frozen and thereby prevent the loss of this carbon that leaks out. So if you think of um, that habitat, Siberia, where the mammoths used to roam, for much of the year it's covered by a thick blanket of snow. And, and blankets are insulating. They keep things warmer than they otherwise would be. And so the idea with getting many woolly mammoth-like creatures up into that habitat is that they would run around with their big mammoth feet and they would punch <laughs> holes in this snowy blanket, mm -hmm. which would, which would create these perforation holes in that blanket that would allow frigid air from the atmosphere to cycle through and come down and hit the topsoil of the permafrost. And basically they would be mobile ventilating systems that would allow this cold air to cycle through that otherwise isn't cycling as these mammoths would be, you know, vigorously looking for blades of grass to eat in the winter months. And if they are aggressive like elephants, then they would topple over um, dark tree stumps. Then we know that dark things absorb heat. So by getting rid of dark shrubs and, and stumps and things like that and f fertilizing the soil with their dung to create lighter colored grasses that reflect the sun's heat, you see how the theory here posits that woolly mammoths would basically be giant ecosystem engineers mm -hmm. that would help keep things colder than they are currently. And so the proposal is to start with about 80,000 recreated woolly mammoths and get them into Siberia, specifically in a place called Pleistocene Park to start. Um, because there, there's a very interesting um, scientist by the name of Sergei Zimov, a Russian scientist, who has been operating with this theory for many years that we need to slow the thaw of the permafrost by doing whatever we can to engineer that ecosystem to be what it was like during the Pleistocene, you know, over 10,000 years ago when the mammoths were, were living there. And his theory is that excessive trampling of the snow can cause massive temperature change that is needed to keep the soils colder. And so he's been doing this with available animals like um, wapiti and bison and um, muskox and demonstrating that indeed a lot of animals trampling in an area and creating those ventilating holes in the blanket of snow can keep things cooler. And he's agnostic as to how on earth 
they do that there. They don't care. As he, his son told me, I don't care if it has six legs and 10 horns, you know, it just needs to be mm-hmm. some animal that can carry out the role. So they are perfectly welcoming of the idea that 80,000 lab created mammoths might appear one day to do that job, perhaps more efficiently than the available animals currently do. And how many years would it take to produce 80,000 woolly mammoths? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I mean, we have not um, gotten any update on this, but when I was writing my book, uh, George said that they expect that they will have all of the gene editing work figured out by the end of 2019, which is where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> um, you, you haven't gotten an update yet. Keep us updated on that. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's say maybe they could figure out the gene editing work within the next year or so. Um, meaning that they create all those CRISPR edits in an elephant embryo so that it basically has enough woolly mammoth genetic changes made to it that you could um, create some kind of elephant that has thick, fatty skin like the mammoths had, which are was more insulating, and that shaggy, iconic hair that mammoths had mm-hmm. to keep them warm and smaller ears to allow less heat to escape and crucially the ability to bind and release oxygen in its blood at freezing temperatures. So now you've imbued this elephant embryo with these kinds of genetic traits that would lead to those um, characteristics. Well, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a quick, snappy um, gestational process in birth. Elephants take 22 months to, to grow their young in, inside their uteruses before the birth happens. Um, but we know from these high-tech experiments with cloning, for example, how rife with trial and error the process might be. So um, it's, it's highly unlikely that it would just work in the first attempt of trying to grow this genetically modified embryo inside of an elephant surrogate mother or even an artificial womb, which they're trying to develop for this project because it's more ethical to use machines to gestate a growing de-extincted mammoth than it is to use the uteruses of endangered elephants. Um, so you see, the all, all of a sudden we start <laughs> realizing, ah, okay, there's many, many caveats here. We need to have the right artificial womb technology working or we need to find a way of getting access to elephant surrogates, which is not going to prove easy because they are endangered and caretakers won't want them to be used that way. And then there's the fact that this hasn't been done before, so it might not just happen in 22 months. Anyway, let's add a few more years onto that. Mm-hmm. And then you need to um, go from having produced what, let's say they succeed and you get this elephant that looks like a woolly mammoth, um, how do you go from an individual to a population? You know, you need that's an incredibly um, more complex process than just creating an, a mammoth in the lab. So then you have to have these kind of controlled settings in which they're being reared and learning their mammoth culture, um, and then eventually getting them to be a herd out in the wild. So that process, I would, I do not know how to put a number on how long that would be, but. But it's important to think about all the steps it involves. And there's all, always the risk of the uh, unintended consequences, the unanticip- unanticipated problems. Um, yeah, I can see yeah. it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, there are also efforts, as in your book, you you know, um, extensively efforts to bring back the passenger pigeon. Uh, uh, Martha, the last uh, the last uh, passenger pigeon died in 1914. And uh, as you also know, there were once literally billions of these birds flying over. They would darken the sky. So so explain to us what happened to the passenger pigeon. Yes. Other than man, we know man happened to them. Uh, was there any other factor? Because there were billions of them. Yeah, there were billions of them. There are records of a single flock taking 14 hours to pass a, uh, overhead from a vantage point of, of a viewer in Ontario that kept this journal of them. I mean, they were they were the most populous avian species humans have ever interacted with. And there are some different theories as to what ultimately caused their demise. We do know for sure that the main the main driver of their extinction was us. We hunted them from billions to none in less than 50 years. So that is clear. Mm-hmm. We are the driver of their extinction. But there could have been other factors that were also playing in. Um, sometimes uh, it's debated as to whether or not um, this effect set in whereby when you have really, really populous species like that, um, if they fall below a certain number, then they will just crash. So um, that could have possibly been at play here within the passenger pigeons that they just could not thrive as a species once we had decimated them to a certain point. Um, But there's no clear consensus on that right now. So extinction is is actually sort of a slow-moving process. Uh, the last uh, um, a member of a species doesn't have to die. Extinction actually can occur much earlier. There, there's sort of dead animals walking at that point. The, we, you can see the handwriting on the wall, correct? Yeah, they're kind of um, ripples or waves of extinction. The philosopher of extinction, Thomas Van Doren, speaks about this, writes about this really beautifully. You know, when you go and see the last ever snail sitting in a glass box, the last snail of its species. And there are none in the wild. There are none carrying out its ecosystem role. Is that existence of the one last member of that species somehow really saying that the species is not extinct? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's functionally extinct. It's, it's gone from the wild and now it only serves to satisfy human care- curiosity from those of us who peer at it through that glass box. And so, although there's, of course, a technical difference as to when that snail dies, and then there's a complete extinction, we see that um, extinction often really relates to the, the function in the ecosystem of that organism and, and what its legacy was and how it, how it is today. So we talk a lot about the northern white rhino. Um, there's a lot of international kind of attention on the northern white rhino because there's only two left right now and they live in Kenya and they're mother and daughter. Um, But we speak about them as though they're not extinct when they are truly a dead species walking and they carry out no ecosystem role any longer. Yes, you actually had um, quite a touching interaction with Sudan, one of those rhinos, didn't you? Yeah, so I had the huge privilege of being able to um, travel to Kenya and meet what were then the last three northern white rhinos that live in this conservancy called Old Pajeta near the equator. And uh, Sudan, unfortunately, since then, has actually died. So um, he was the last male 
And he was the father of Najin, who's one of the two females who's left, and then Fatu is her daughter. So they were all, all tight family. And, uh, you know, if they had interbred, they would have been in genetic trouble <laughs> because of their tight relations. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a way out for them. Um, but beyond that, they have a bunch of reproductive problems as it is. Um, the two females, one has a problem with her back legs and she can't carry a pregnancy and the other one has ovarian cysts and other issues. So they've really been in a jam. Um, but we hunted these Northern white rhinos to the, to this point. And, um, I had a very touching encounter. Yes. With, with Sudan, because, uh, I thought I would just be able to look at him from across the pen or something when his caretaker said, sure, we can go over and meet him. But uh, I was actually able to go right up to him and touch him and hang out with him for a little while. It was wild. And it felt like being in the midst of a dinosaur, such an ancient, glorious, larger-than-life creature, and also the last male of his kind in the entire world. It was really, it was really humbling. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. I mean, uh, I, I've been in the Serengeti and... and uh... My guide uh, was trying to trying to find the rhinos because they move them around. They don't keep because of poachers. They don't keep them in one spot. G- getting back, getting back to the passenger pigeon. So, so what is the argument for bringing back the passenger pigeon? Sure. So the argument that um, Ben Novak, who's the lead scientist of that passenger pigeon comeback project, that he puts forth. Um, also, of course, relates to the idea of ecological restoration, but because the bird was so populous and it would fly in flocks of hundreds of millions to, there were billions, um, they had a huge impact on the forests where they flew. So what we have right now in the forests of Eastern North America, where they, where they lived is generally a closed canopy system. So the tree branches, they meet way up high and they're densely uh, intertwined with one another, which kind of prevents sunlight from hitting the forest floor. But if it had been ripped open by a kind of forest disturbance by, let's say, millions of passenger pigeons coming and landing on the branches and, um, you know, ripping the bark off and causing young shoots to crumple and um, these kinds of destructive forces that come with having that many animals landing to roost and nest, then you start to break open that canopy and it allows um, sunlight to come down and penetrate the forest floor, which then brings the energy that's needed for rich undergrowth to, to, to be cultivated there. And it starts to become lush with other kinds of plant and animal life. Um, and essentially that will grow and grow until the canopy gets thick again. And then the, the pigeons return the next year and, and the whole system kind of keeps a cycle moving mm-hmm. that is currently not there is this has been Novak's argument. And because we rely on forest disturbances to produce the next successional forest generation in many forests, um, things like fires and hailstorms are useful for this, but sometimes we even, Um, impose them upon the forest ourselves by causing a fire, for example, to try and Mm -hmm. get get them to re-germinate and move into the next generation of a forest. He says it would be much more desirable to get huge flocks of pigeons back to do it naturally. (laughs) Right. So, 
you know, the, those forests are not far from many human com- communities. It's an incredibly populated part of North America. So, right. Yeah. And, and there's there always the danger of re-extinction. What about the same factors? Uh, maybe the same factors that drove them into extinction in the first place could be operative again, and we bring them back just to lose them. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's what I mean. So there are lots of people around. Would we not think that they tasted good? Again, would they not be another um, cheap source of protein that we wanted to eat? We know that we made them go extinct in less than 50 years through hunting. Could we do it again? Also, how would humans feel about all those excess droppings on their windshields, for example, if you had flocks so large that they darkened the skies? Would we not think that that was a frightening pest and want to shoot them out of the skies? I mean, these are huge cultural questions. Yeah. yeah. And, and the first first uh, unextinct animal that kills a human, that, that would be a very, very big deal, wouldn't it? For example, the, the woolly mammoth oh, just sits on somebody. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm laughing. I'm sorry about that. But, uh, you know, the human animal interaction, people panic. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Why did we bring it back? That animal is dangerous, right? Totally. It could just take one wrong move and then there's a huge revolt from the public and the acceptance that the scientists were hoping for is shot Mm -hmm. through, is gone. So so people have to be prepared for for, uh, de-extinction, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, you know the, the, su- the subtitle of your book is, is The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. We've already touched on that a bit. Uh, could, could you elaborate on it a bit more, the, the risks and possible ethical dilemmas of de-extinction? For example, um, if, if we bring back the woolly mammoth and the passenger pigeon, they won't be genetic replicants. They will be hybrids, as you noted before. And and anything that's reverse engineered, I mean, can be patented, correct? Well, there's no precedent yet for how this is going to go because we haven't fully pursued it. But usually um, in the eyes of the law, for example, in, in American law, you cannot patent a product of nature. So you can't patent a naturally occurring organism. But if there's a clear inventive step, then you can patent it, which means that genetically modified organisms are patentable. In Canada, Mm -hmm. we can't patent so-called higher organisms, which is kind of uh, an antiquated term to talk about complex forms of life. What would be patentable in the United States um, if, like a woolly mammoth, for example, if it were to move north into Canada, perhaps the patent would not hold. Um, so, yeah, it, it remains to be seen exactly how the law will deal with this, but there is reason to believe that in, in some places where this is being pursued, yes, indeed, they would be patentable, um, which raises all sorts of questions about the fate of those animals, because even though the scientists pursuing this say that they don't want to profit off of them, we know that... If someone has deep enough pockets, they can license the patent mm-hmm. and then they can do whatever they want with those organisms, um, whether that be, you know, create a theme park, their own version of Jurassic Park, but for passenger pigeons or gastric brooding frogs or whatever the case may be. Or u- unique pets. Unique pets, exactly. The exotic pet trade. Um, and mm. I know that this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I've had a number of people tell me that they would love to eat a salted mammoth leg. 
as charcuterie, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. kind of okay. gourmet foodie yeah. stuff. Uh, or, or bring back, bring back squab, bring back passenger pigeon squab. That's very tasty indeed. Apparently sure, sure, exactly. I mean, there's all sorts of ways. We know that humans have strange ideas constantly about how they want to exploit other life forms for their own enjoyment. So could these animals be protected truly and fully and completely from that kind of eventuality, given that they could be patented. And we are not yet sure how they would be listed on the Endangered Species Act, for example. So can legislation and regulation keep up with this bioinnovation? Um, it's going to be difficult, isn't it? Yeah, that was the question that I posed to a few lawyers um, who were lending their expertise to really assess de-extinction and think about how it relates to existing laws. And they said, you know, it's just not likely that this is going to rise high on the agenda as a priority compared to all other kinds of issues that lawmakers have to deal with all the time. It's, it's quite niche and of course, the science moves ahead at a lightning speed compared to the cultural uptake of its innovation and the regulation around it. And so there's going to be that traditional lag that we're already seeing between what is possible and how we make sure that it plays out in reality with our regulations in, in very safe ways. I think there's a risk of that that being part of the story of de-extinction at all times, essentially. But there are there are ways in which um, people are on the case thinking about how to use existing measures. And, and for example, um, in the United States, uh, it would, you know, using the Environmental Protection Agency and the Food and Drug Administration and existing bodies to have a say in what is really possible here. It's just that this is, as of yet, still not a success story. Um, mm -hmm. These are projects that are in process, and it's going to take these animals being born uh, for us to really know how it's going to shake down. Yeah, see how it all plays out, because lack of legislation and regulation or inadequate uh, legislation and regulation is an open door for profiteers. So right. really follow the money, follow the money. If, if somebody sees an opportunity to make it, uh, they'll be there. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, the, fi the final chapter of your book is titled, Is Some Knowledge Too Dangerous? Uh, you know, in that section, you write about the narrative of science, the storytelling, the mythology. You invoke images of the archetypal mad scientists, the tree of knowledge, Faustian bargains, and, and, and Frankenstein, um, which is very interesting. So, so what are the dangers of scientific hubris? Uh, the temptation to do something simply because we can. What if our knowledge and uh, technologies outstrip our ethical capacities? Well, in this way, Jurassic Park is a little bit useful because uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in the film warns us that, you know, when we try to control life, life finds a way to break free of our grip on it. Mm -hmm. And the hubris of imagining that we understand all the ways in which this could possibly go wrong or evolve out of our control um, that would be a very unwise mistake to make. <laughs> These are um, unknowable complexities. We're talking about life forms that then go into ecosystems that are far more complex than we can grasp. And so 
in that sense, there needs to be a humility and a close attention of care that is administered at every step along the way in these projects. And um, I don't believe that there's any harm in thinking about this um, and working on it. It's not like Frankenstein um, needs to be the trope that we, we take away and ascribe to the extinction. Um, usually, why I wrote, why I actually raised Frankenstein in the book is that usually in, in our widespread culture, we think that Frankenstein was the monster, but it, it actually isn't. It's the name of the doctor, <laughs> um, Dr. Frankenstein, who created the monster. And the monster did not actually turn mean until Dr. Frankenstein abandoned it. Mm-hmm. It was begging for a companion, and it was a life form in, in need of love and care. But Dr. Frankenstein was horrified by his creation, and he, yeah, he left he it. Was a dead, he was a deadbeat father. He was a deadbeat dad, exactly. And yeah. that's when things got nasty. And yeah. similarly with de-extinction and these kinds of high-tech um, experiments that are now unfolding in, in spaces of genetic modification. It's not that we must, on principle, assume that they are going to go poorly or that it's hubristic to even try. It's just that we need to have an open and caring and compassionate relationship that is staying very close at all times um, to the process as it unfolds. So it's just about trying to engender an ethics of care in right. these projects. Well, well, the Frankenstein trope is, is a very, very powerful one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is another book you could have mentioned. It was written in 1896, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. By H.G. Wells. And I love that book when I read it as a kid. And, of course, he was producing human-animal hybrids using vivisection because this was a long, long time before any kind of uh, genetic engineering. But uh, that is also that is also a cautionary tale against hubris, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think we need to be really mindful of these wonderful tropes from literature and art. Um, we've seen it many times play out the wrong way in real-world science. And de-extinction has no excuse to become another one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 George Church, whom you've mentioned earlier in his book, Regenesis, um, writes about the possible Neanderthal de-extinction. What do you think of that? I think it's highly unethical. Um, if we were to try and bring a Neanderthal into this world at this time, um, imagine, imagine. I mean, we we know that Neanderthals were intelligent. Many of us have Neanderthal DNA in our genomes right now. We know we interbred with them. Um, And you are brought into a world where you are a specimen uh, to be studied, poked and prodded by these curious animals that your ancestors uh, interbred with. And due to the highly social nature, I mean, we wouldn't be able to provide the societies for it, for it to have probably a Neanderthal life worth living. It just becomes a really perverse curiosity project. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think we we'd better never do that. Is my but but statement. at present is there are there any legal constraints against someone attempting it? It's a really interesting question because the law does not identify a Neanderthal as human. 
Um, well, I, I'm not sure if the laws had to consider this question. And so there are laws in certain countries against doing what's called germline modification to humans. So that's when you are um, genetically manipulating either sperm or eggs or embryos, the kinds of genetic material that will then give rise to a human um, and that will be passed on through generations. And um, for example, in Germany, it's illegal to do any kind of germline manipulation in human cells. And so would Neanderthals, manipulating Neanderthals and trying to recreate them, um, fall under that category of doing germline manipulation in some kind of human living system? Because we would probably be using human materials to do that gene editing if we were to pursue the CRISPR method to try and edit human DNA to mimic Neanderthal DNA, for example. Um, now, is there inter international law against that, or is it country by country? It's country by country. So someone could do such work in a country that doesn't govern that. Yes, yeah, yeah, which is why it's, I mean, now that we are in the area era of human CRISPR experiments, um, mm -hmm. people are trying to cure genetic diseases in humans by, you know, using CRISPR to change faulty DNA into healthy DNA. But as we saw just in... Um, November last year, the world's first uh, CRISPR babies were born in China through a clandestine experiment, um, which has now been cracked down on after the fact. But it just goes to show that, you know, if you have rogue actors anywhere, they can pursue this, um, usually outside of the scrutiny of the scientific community yeah. because they just keep quiet about it. So conceivably, uh, designer humans. Uh, humans, for example, that would be particularly adapted to space travel, who uh, would have an easier time uh, the, uh, on planets with different gravities, thinner atmospheres. Uh, that uh, Would that be cons theoretically possible? If we could understand the genetic basis of characteristics like that, then theoretically, yes. Um, mm hmm but there's, yeah, there's a lot of scientific knowledge we would still need to gain to really achieve a lot of these designer baby dreams that we speak about. Um, but there are, you know, there's still plenty of, of genetic underpinnings that we do understand well. Um, there's, there's even a, a genetic mutation that can cause someone to not feel physical pain. Oh, so imagine, really? Yeah. But isn't, isn't that dangerous to the human? Pain is what keeps us from damaging ourselves. Absolutely. And there is a case of a boy who naturally had this mutation, um, an Indian boy who used to, um, you know, gather attention from his superpower of not feeling any pain and he would do things for money, but he jumped off of a roof and eventually died. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, but if you could engineer that into super soldiers, let's say, mm -hmm. that's a valuable trait that maybe a nation state wants. Or, or, or perhaps uh, these super soldiers who basically have no fear. Yeah. They're absolutely fearless. Right. Right. Yeah. So these, wow. these are, the, the questions that we need to contend with now as we're racing ahead in, in human gene editing. The time is now, yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is, absolutely. So f finally, you know, after having researched and written this book, 
what conclusions have you drawn about the extinction? Have you any reservations about species restoration or are you fully on board with it? Oh, I have tons of reservations about it. <laughs> I'd say that's what my entire book is about. It's about um, me listing all of the reservations I have with it. But um, it isn't an indictment of the overall um, movement. I think it could be done wisely as long as scientists are careful and methodical and um, loving towards their projects in the ways that we just talked about regarding Frankenstein. Um, but it needs to be slow and it needs to be respectful and it needs to be really rigorously um, modeled and then slowly tested in order to make sure that these species have a chance of making it in the wild and they're not just vanity projects, you know? It has to be very, very selective. Very selective. And we have good guidelines from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and we have... Um, you know, well-resourced laboratories that are involved. And so I think it, it, it could possibly um, be done in a, in a sober way. But I'm, I'm much more interested in how these tools, as we sharpen them, gene editing tools, cloning, how, how these can be used for other forms of conservation, how they can be used to boost the well-being and the survivability and just general viability of endangered species. So we don't need to do these sensational things like bring back species that have been gone for hundreds or thousands of years, but we can help um, failing ecosystems adapt now while they're still hanging on. So coral reefs, for example, could we use gene editing to um, create bleaching tolerant coral reefs because we know that with warming waters, they are bleaching at an astounding rate, and we can expect for them to essentially go extinct before too long. Very sadly, it's one of the two most biodiverse ecosystems on the entire planet, the other one only being the rainforest. So um, how can we harness some of these tools and these approaches and basically this philosophy that synthetic biology or high-tech biotech um, can be used for conservation? And it doesn't need to be as drastic as doing de-extinction, but we could apply it to bats that are dying of white nose syndrome. Could you mm. tweak their genes so that they become immune to the, the fungus that is killing them in droves as they hibernate and it, it sets into their wings and faces and it um, wakes them up before they've been able to reserve all their energy stores through a full hibernation and then it forces them to expend energy that they don't have and then they die. Now, isn't that spread through biting one bat, biting another? Is that it? Yeah. How, how, how does, yeah, it's uh, it's highly contagious between them through interactions like biting. And so it just spreads really quickly. And um, they're in really a dire situation right now. But um, if you look at, I mean, just a quick Google search, if you look at white nose syndrome in bats, you'll see it. The whole colony just hanging upside down during hibernation is they've turned white in the face and they will soon wake up from that fungus invading their systems and then die. You, you know, as a, you also mentioned in your book how this has helped um, with the chestnut, the American chestnut. And it occurred to me that there could be another book here called Rise of the Necroflora. Uh, yeah. Because this is, this is also used for plants as well. Yeah, it can be, exactly. So um, the American chestnut is not 
function. So it, it's very strange because there are chestnut trees. Um, mm-hmm. However, they are being choked off by a blight that grows on them and prevents them from uh, reaching their full potential. And essentially it, it knocks down the, the height of the trees. They can only grow so high because the, the blight, this kind of fungus that grows around the ring will, will prevent them from going further. And when you have forests of chestnut, they're, they're almost in this semi-living state. And um, what scientists have been able to do is isolate genes from other species like um, wheat that are resistant to the kind of fungus that causes the blight and then engineer the American chestnuts to have those resistant genes in them so that they no longer succumb to the blight that has been wiping out the entire population of American chestnuts. And they're just now getting to the point where they're starting to outcrop them and, and plant these genetically engineered blight-resistant American chestnuts into forests, which is extremely exciting. Um, And that's exactly the way that these conservation biology projects can benefit from genetic engineering. And I think we need to be thinking about this, um, yes, in plants, um, but just more widely in general for those species that are still here and could use some help. Britt, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us today and and discussing your, your, your wonderful and thoughtful book. Thank you so much for having me and for all of your thoughtful questions. Yeah, it was nice to speak with you. Thank you. You have been listening to a conversation with writer and broadcaster Britt Ray about her book, Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. For CNIB's Unbound, this is James Danas saying goodbye and good listening. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.